BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Uh, David, I got a lot to talk about. That's today. right, Josh. How are you doing? Uh, good. I've been a little under the weather, I've been, and 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 uh, my um, my 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 two sons are are in a new school this year. So between those two things, it's been sort of like I've, I've been a little less up like up to date on yeah, the news. It's a busy last, time last transitioning yeah, back into the yeah, classroom. Yeah, I, I need to find out from you guys some of the stuff that's going on. But I know there's there's like a lot. I feel like there's I, I feel I know there's a lot of stories that are going on. It's just that I don't know enough about. Them. <laughs> well, we'll catch you up. Yeah. Joining us as always, Kate. Riga, how are you? Good. Hello, everybody. And Sad a, I'm not back to school. <laughs> yeah, totally. And a very special guest, Nicole LaFond. How are you, Nicole? I'm good. Very special. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So, yeah, Josh, like you said, a lot to get to today. But before that... Yeah, I guess, okay, we'll, we'll go right into uh, talk about Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, which I actually have a, a supply of right here. That's who I am. Uh, yeah, a couple of us have it. <laughs> I uh, do no not. one else. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know that you were, that's part of the contractual yeah, obligations really, of the really, podcast. Yeah, really, really, really. Breaking news in the cold brew world, Grady's Cold Brew is now shipping all of its liquid products nationwide. Now everyone has access to all of the products that made Grady's famous. 32-ounce bottles of New Orleans-style concentrate, 42 serving bag and boxes and even single serve bottles drink it straight mix it with your favorite milk or spike it for a caffeinated cocktail grady's is brewed and bottled daily at their brewery in the bronx so bottles ship cold for peak freshness ready to give it a swirl get 20 percent off your first order at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code tpm that's grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code tpm all right we got that out of the way. So right. what are we talking about? Today? So we had Corey Lewandowski, the President Trump's former campaign manager, in front of the House Judiciary Committee yesterday, spent a lot of time stonewalling Democrats and not answering questions. Then this week, we are covering climate change in a more serious way. And Nicole has written a piece up on the site right now about some of the various ways that the Trump administration has rolled back or weakened kind of the Obama administration's efforts to fight climate change, protect the environment, things like that. And finally, we will touch on this Brett Kavanaugh story, which started in the New York Times over the weekend. It was a Sunday Review opinion piece that was an excerpt from two Times reporters' book looking into the Kavanaugh confirmation fight and the sexual misconduct allegations and so on that he faced in the confirmation process just about a year ago now. Yeah. I think it's like exactly almost a year, exactly yeah, a year almost ago. Almost exactly a year ago. Because it came like, it, it came, you know, right you know, a month or so, a month or two out from the midterm election. It was like That's supposed right. to like, right. you know, kind of uh, be a bad thing for what, you know, according to the Republicans, it was going to be a bad thing for right. the Democrats. And energize Republican voters. Right, so right, right, so right, right. Which it may have actually done in some, in a couple Senate races. Uh, right. It clearly didn't, didn't do anything for them in the House. Yeah. So the House Judiciary Committee has sort of been wink, wink, impeachment investigating, right? Mm-hmm. Pelosi obviously has been not wanting to go too far down that road, but uh, Nadler, who's the chairman of the committee, has kind of admitted as such like that these are kind of investigative or, you know, impeachment inquiries. And so yesterday we had what was basically the first hearing kind of in that effort. Is that mm-hmm. right, Kate? Yeah, right. Um, I think we've also seen Nadler in recent days kind of getting a little bolder about his his personal feelings on impeachment and you know we'll get to this at the bottom of the show but there are a lot of dynamics for us to delve into there you know even more than just the kind of coming from a a law standpoint and a politics standpoint but also you know Nadler's got his own primary to contend with so there's a lot for us to unpack right so yesterday we had Corey Lewandowski appear in front of the committee for I don't know like six plus hours, Mm -hmm. maybe seven hours, something like that. Spent a lot of time not answering questions, basically invoking executive privilege from the White House saying, you know, the White House has instructed me not to share any details of conversations I had with the president or his advisors and so on and so on. It's one of those things where Democrats on the committee were trying to ask 
questions basically to try to you know uncover either Trump's wrongdoing or just corruption in general and Republicans were basically saying isn't this all just kind of a big joke and a charade right what was your everyone's sense of how things went I thought that the I mean the Democrats looked hapless for most of it I mean Lewandowski was gleefully stepping all over procedure you know using um executive privilege that doesn't apply to him as he never worked a day in the White House. Yeah, you know? that part is just open and shut. It's bizarre. Right. You can't, I mean, so the whole, it, it's hard to know where to go from that. They're invoking something that I think everybody agrees cannot apply to someone who's just a pal. Right. Which, <laughs> I mean, leaves you with, okay, what now? He says, you know, I'm shrouded in executive privilege. Democrats say, no, you're not. He says, yes, I am not going to say anything. And then your five minutes are up. You right. know, I mean, it just made the whole thing such a charade. Now, didn't I, I didn't I like I said, I, I was I was dealing with other other uh, matters. But what I heard, at least, was that at the end of the day, they finally got to the sort of the professional questioner, yeah. this staff guy. Mm-hmm. And at least as as I heard about it. It was like a dramatically different picture then. Yeah. He like made mincemeat out of him, basically. Absolutely. But that was kind of after they'd spent a kind of a day just getting nowhere and sort of after the, uh, you know, after the storyline had been created, mm-hmm. as it were. Right. That kind of like nothing happened. And then like from five on or something right. like that, this guy, and, and this is always the thing, you need to get a professional questioner and just have that person go is that did you was yeah, that your sense? yeah absolutely i mean it was already five hours in so there was already a spate of headlines of you know lewandowski stonewalls blah 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 and then they brought on um, barry burke who's the, their staff attorney and he was just you know lewandowski would try to evoke this executive privilege and he would be like well you realize you wrote a book with these conversations in them isn't that true you know and he's the one who prompted him to say his line um i don't owe the media a candid conversation or i don't hold myself to any kind of truth when i'm not under oath so, I mean, after you get that question out, you're like, okay, so what are we doing here? <laughs> right. What was it? Was it, was it? was it the fact that he had more continuity that Burke did, that he could, you know, that he wasn't locked into these five-minute intervals? Was he just better prepared? Like, what was the difference? I think the continuity is a big part of it. He had a half hour. So in the, what Lewandowski was doing for a lot of the Democratic questioning was being like, can you point out where in the report that is? And, you know, just using up all their time. Right, but then right, at the right. same time, I mean, the Democrats are still their politicians. Like they want a their moment, you know, right. they tend towards monologue. And then you have this guy who's got no agenda other than poking holes in a right. witness. Right. That's true. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, the hearing was on most of the cable networks for a decent part of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. It's not like there was a ton other riveting television to be programmed but then yeah i guess the last part of it was between yeah somewhere around six between six and seven o'clock but yeah the the lewandowski media line i want to drill into that a little bit because kate and nicole you both work the early shift at tpm right you're up with the sun if not earlier (laughs) and lewandowski gets up and says yeah i don't i don't need to be honest with the media i'm not under any obligation to do that and then cnn turns around and does what well, they booked him. <laughs> I mean, uh, to be fair, he was also on Fox and Friends before that. Um, and the Martha McCallum one. Yeah, the last evening. So okay, yeah. CNN wasn't the only culprit. Right, so the media says, all right, he's going to not be honest or forthright or whatever, and that's cool. We'll just have him on TV anyways. Right, I mean, and CNN tried to kind of introduce this with, like, you know, we're going to take the hammer to Lewandowski. You just wait. And it's just there's nothing you can do in the face of someone who has no qualms about lying, you know? So they, it's um, him and Allison Camerata. They get in these endless back and forth where, you know, he's just going, Allison, 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 you know, you're being disingenuous. Was John Berman also? He was, I think he was just listening. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, the whole thing was just, I mean, he just, he's gleeful about it. It's hard to watch because it's well, not that, only damaging. Yeah, but. that that's one thing and and that came out in the sort of limited portions of his testimony that I was able to listen to yesterday. It's not just that they're invoking these, you know, uh, facially non-existent privileges. I mean, it just doesn't apply. Uh, it, it, it's also that they're in, you know, it is part of their thing, the sort of the Trump administration thing, that they don't want to just get through the hearings without, you know, uh, having to reveal anything. They are trying to basically tell the committee to fuck themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and to sort of taunt them with, with 
their inability to make them follow the rules. Um, and that is really, that's really the essence of it. It's not like, I mean, if you look at like the body language and all of this, it's not like, uh, you know, Lewandowski sort of dragged up there and he's, he's hating it and tail between his legs. Yeah. And yeah. kind of like, and he's like, uh, you know, kind of plead the fifth, plead the fifth, plead the fifth. He's enjoying it. And, oh, yeah. it, and it's for an audience of Trump to kind of say, here, I'm, I'm here as your proxy telling them to fuck themselves and, and enjoying it. And speaking of, Trump tweeted after Lewandowski's opening statement that it was a beautiful opening statement by, by Lewandowski. So obviously the message got through. Well, I mean, and it's just like there was one segment on his um, CNN appearance this morning where he says, you know, no collusion, no exoneration. And Alison Camerot is like, you said yesterday that you didn't read the report. And he's like, well, that's true. But are you, you know, are you saying we shouldn't trust Attorney General Barr? It's just like to the point where this is not newsworthy. This is not even like pleasant viewing. It's just horrific. Right, 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 right. And it's giving him a platform because he's running, well, not officially, but planning very openly to run for Senate in New Hampshire. Yeah, that's a good right. point to add. Is there another? Is, is there like another person who's who's going to run, or is it pretty much when he decides he's going to be the candidate? Is that do we know? I, I'm not sure. I haven't really seen yeah. other. It's, it's Shaheen, right? Yeah, that's who's up for the Democrats. Right. Right. It wasn't. I mean, it's hard to imagine that that Trump wouldn't like you know, dump all over whoever, <laughs> anybody else who wants to run, if, right. if, if Lewandowski wants to run. But I would, I would have to imagine that, um, you know, there's a Senate committee that is in charge of like winning Senate seats. Mm-hmm. And in general, I think people think she's, you know, she's in relatively good, you know, fairly good shape. Um, I, it's hard for me to imagine that that is the best they can put forward. I mean, I think it'll be hard for them to the Republicans to win that seat in general. Right. But he is just like I mean, he's ridiculous. He's ridiculous and he he his whole thing is you know, catering to the sort of the 25% of the electorate mm-hmm. that is not just, you know, anti-democrat enough to be to support the president. But the kind of people who were there with, you know, at, at, at uh, you know, Trump rallies with signs say, like, you know, fuck your feelings, right? That kind of, <laughs> that sort of transgressive, yeah, hyper-Trumpist own, sort of lips. thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Thing. Yeah. And that's not going to, that's a, that is a, um, that's not a New Hampshire kind of thing. I mean, New Hampshire is sort of old, kind of old line Republican. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of newer sort of transplants uh, from Boston and Connecticut and stuff, you know, stuff like that. It's there's there's definitely a sort of a Trump uh, constituency there. But it's hard for me to imagine that if you are whoever's running the Senate committee in the Senate this cycle, that that that's what you know, that's the race you want to you want to run. Yeah. I, now that you say that, I kind of recall seeing something to that effect. There was, um, when it came out that he was attending the Trump rally with uh, with Trump, right. there was all this, like, on-the-record reporting that came out that state Republicans were willingly saying, we don't we don't yeah. want this candidate. Oh, in- oh interesting. Yeah, interesting, yeah I believe interesting. It, I think it was Politico that had that. Interesting. Um, I mean, again, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. You've got, like, you know, you have... Uh, it, it's it's funny how that state works. There are like three families that totally dominate the Republican <laughs> Party. There's the Judds. There's uh, uh, the Sununus. I think what is it? Isn't there like a new Sununus governor now or something? Yeah. Okay, right. And he's like the third generation. I mean, literally, I think maybe he may be John Sununu's grandson because his because uh, John Sununu's son was. I don't know if he was senator. They've all been all, you know, all the offices. Uh, so, yeah, it, it really, I mean, A, he has no history. In, I mean, he's from the state, but he has no history kind of like in the state Republican right. Party as like right. a player. So just at the level of, you know, we want one of our guys to get yeah. to get the shot. But just also at the level of winning, I can't imagine. I mean, someone was saying, I saw someone was saying during the commentary yesterday, like that whole thing, like, uh, you know, would be the, the tagline on every ad against him. I have no responsibility to tell the truth. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. To me, it kind of feels like the Lewandowski Senate idea comes from he's been in a lot of TV green rooms. He has this affiliation with Trump. It's just sort of like, yeah, why, you know, I'm awesome. Why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I try to put my hat in the ring? I mean, he's, I guess. he's the, uh, he's the Brad Parscale of, uh, <laughs> of, of senators, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, he really is, yeah, right? Totally. I mean, it's just, you know, how did he ever, uh, you know, like, I mean, 
not quite as bad as is is Parscale, but he had he had never uh, he had never succeeded in anything in politics. And he was just kind of glommed onto as someone, you know, as some, some name they could come up with well, yeah, and to also, be the campaign manager, I mean, in the Republican, but he hit it off with Trump. In the Republican primary in 2016, obviously, it was a huge field. I mean, similar to what we're seeing on the Democratic side today, all the professional political operatives were linked up with more actual, legit politicians at the time. Right. right. Speaking of elections, do we want to do the update here? Sure. Do you want to fill us in on what happened last week in North Carolina? Yeah. So we talked pretty extensively last week about what to expect. And the results came out that um, the Republican Dan Bishop won with 50.7% of the vote to the Democrat Dan McCready's 48.7. So, I mean, kind of what we were saying last week you know, Republicans should have won in a blowout. They won by two points, a district that Trump won by 12, 2016. So, you know, that's not good for news for them. It's not as cataclysmic as if the Democrat had won. Um, And there are some hopeful signs for Democrats in the future. Um, Bishop did poorly in the suburbs. There's continual sliding there, which is, you know, kind of the battlefield where a lot of these House elections will be fought. Um, You know, and then by the same by that same token, there it's not all bleak for Republicans, though. While Bishop slid in the suburbs, McCready slid in the rural areas, showing even greater polarization there. And Democrats invested a lot in turning out um, primarily black counties, and those totals really didn't move much at all from the first round voting in is, 2018. Is, is he given any signs of whether he's going to is going to try this again in, in 2020? McCready? McCready. Yeah. Um, not in his speech, but I mean, well, he's been campaigning for two years, so maybe he'll right, take a week not? off yeah, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> reconsider. I mean, I was just thinking, because it's, it's, you know, uh, uh, special elections are are weird. Mm-hmm. They have lower turnout. I mean, this one had very high turnout for a special election, but I think it was still significantly under the turnout for yeah. the 2018 election. They were also having some Hurricane Dorian fall right. out there, so the weather right. sucked. And too. it's like right. right at the end of summer, people aren't super necessarily super engaged over the, you know, off months. Yeah, I mean, I could see, I mean, it, it you know, from one perspective, it sort of seems like, all right, man, you tried twice. It and didn't like happen. It didn't happen, mm-hmm. and it's a really hard district, so sort of like, you know, maybe maybe it's time to pack it in. But there's also at least an argument that, you know, really damn close, couple times, um, and in a general election, you've got, you know, it's possible you a better, you know, a, an electorate that has a better shape to it or something like that. So I'm curious whether he will yeah. try again. I mean, I also think this race kind of has echoes of um, the special election in Georgia six. That was John Ossoff and Karen Handel, yep. Yep. and you know that was got so much attention, especially because the timing of it and Ossoff fell short but you know that's the district that lucy mcbath won in 2018 so it is right. kind of like there's a ripple effect right and in- incremental ground being won that even you know maybe not this time but maybe the next time you know they'll have democrats will have more infrastructure in place or the suburbs will be even wearier of trump you know right, right. well it's also the possibility i mean I, I well i don't know this is what happened i mean there's a lot of different arguments but one one theory of what happened in the Georgia six race is that in, uh, you know, the spring of 2017 or whenever that was, there was huge energy on the part of the Democrats. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it was the only game in town. So Republicans could just put everything right. in there and just just, you know, clobber the Democrats with like tons of outside spending. And that does Which seem like what here. they did here. Yeah. And in a in a general election, there's gonna be a lot of other stuff going on. There's the presidential, there's, you know, there's a million competitive House districts. So a race like that can sort of not slip under the under the radar. People know it's happening, but you just can't put everything into it exactly so i'm curious whether whether he whether he chooses to run again i mean it would be if he didn't it 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 would certainly seem logical that it would draw another serious candidate yeah absolutely if you're that close you know uh i don't know there's certainly an argument that uh with trump on the ticket maybe that's an advantage for the republicans in north carolina but not necessarily that i think is the thing that's hardest to parse here is you know, did did Trump and Pence swooping in at the last minute pull Bishop over the line? Right. You know, was that an infusion of enthusiasm they needed? Did that 
turn out the suburbs more than they would have. You know, those intangibles are hard to tell. Right, right, right. Okay, shifting gears a little bit to our next topic. Uh, This week, the Columbia Journalism Review and The Nation magazine, along with dozens of other news organizations, are kind of doing a collective, coordinated week of coverage on climate change. It's a topic that's traditionally been a little bit tough to get audiences to really care about. It's something that impacts all of us, you know, especially living on the coast. But it always felt like the impacts or the most dire consequences were kind of far in the future, and that's becoming less the case now. I wanted to bring in our TPM's managing editor, John Light, to kind of share just a little bit of TPM's participation in the project and then talk about a piece Nicole just published on uh, some of the Trump administration's efforts to roll back any progress or protections that the Obama administration had regarding the environment. Thanks, David. This is a cool thing they've put together. It's, uh, as you were saying, it's a project that I think grew out of CJR's the Columbia Journalism Review's editor-in-chief, Kyle Pope and the nation's climate guy, Mark Hertzgard. And they've got um, 250 journalistic organizations in countries around the world committing to do a week of focused climate coverage. And the peg for this thing has been, you know, in news, you always want to have like a event, basically an excuse for why you're covering this now, is that the UN is having an event um, to try and draw attention to this. Trump is just blowing it off. And the UN has been kind of beating this drum for 30 years. So it's, you know... It's a little depressing to see kind of the same thing happen as, you know, the the effects of climate change start to arrive and still it's hard to get collective action. But the Paris Agreement three years ago was a thing. Trump wants to pull the U.S. out of it. The question kind of lingering over all of this is whether the rest of the world will kind of move forward without us. So um, in keeping with that, we, we, we had this piece this week that Nicole put together kind of looking at the Trump administration has been moving really fast this summer uh, to just achieve a bunch of its priorities to throw out climate regulations. So, Nicole, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I think last week I started calling around to a bunch of climate experts and um, spoke to a few different people who kind of, I mean, I'm not a climate expert by any means. I just, uh, you know, I'm curious about the topic and I read about it um, and basically had them kind of divide out what they think the most damaging things that the Trump administration has done so far this summer. And um, one of the first things most people cited was the rollback of the George W. Bush era law um, that basically made it so that by 2020, we would phase out um, incandescent and halogen light bulbs for more energy efficient models. And the Obama administration put rules in place for what that would look like. And the Trump administration um, last, I think it was earlier this month, um, basically put uh, a stop to that. So it it was intended to roll out in January 2020, and it's not happening now. There's a lot of rationale for why Trump kind of said that he didn't think it would save as much money as it was intended to for consumers, and consumers wouldn't have as much choice. He also made some joke about how LED lights make him look orange, which is <laughs> just very laughable. One of the interesting things with this, I think, is that you know Congress will make a law. There's that kind of broad mandate, but then so much of what it looks like in practice is up to how the EPA or the agency writes the rules. We see this again with the light bulb thing. It's got to do something about light bulbs. <laughs> but but <laughs> what that means is completely open to whoever's running the EPA at any given time. And an interesting part of your piece, I thought, Nicole, was that you were saying that, in fact, the guy running it right now, Andrew Wheeler, we hear much less about him, but he's far more effective than Scott Pruitt, who was just kind of always stepping in it and, um, you know, didn't actually get as much done as uh, the, this guy, Wheeler, a former lobbyist who really knows his way around. Right. And he's only been, well, he, he took over when Pruitt was ousted, but he's he's been the official head since February when he was confirmed and has done significantly more with far less uh, negative it, media coverage. It also seems like, and this this is, it, it may not be the case here, but there's been this, I mean, a lot of what the Trump administration is doing here is, at least from Trump's point of view, it's just to undo things Obama did. Right. Obviously, there's a lot of corporate, um, you know, ideological heft behind rolling these things back. But but a theme that's come up, and it came up with the auto companies and a, num- a number of different places, 
where corporate America has actually moved on in a lot of cases. Right. And, and, and so they're actually doing things that they're not getting pushed by sort of corporate lobbies in a lot of cases. And, and it's, you know, one example is even with the oil companies now, um, I, was, I, I was doing some reporting on this a few months ago, that in a lot of cases, the oil companies, all of which are international by definition, they operate, you know, they, they drill everywhere, they sell everywhere. In, in it's not, they're obviously still the problem in a, in a fossil fuel, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of fossil fuels, but th- they've stopped saying, oh, there's no global warming, uh, you know, stopped saying, oh, we, you know, we, we can't do wind or stuff like this. They're, you know, they, they've got their angle, but since every other part of the world is kind of just in a different place, th- most of them have kind of said, you know, whatever. What, what's happening in the U.S. Is, is just this, you're just the odd man out. So we're not going to, um, you know, focus our regulatory politics on this kind of island of denial in, in the United States. And then there was this thing with the auto companies where um, the Trump administration wanted to kind of roll back these these uh, regulations that, you know, you had to have higher fuel efficiency. And, and basically the auto companies were like, dude, we don't, you know, we're, we've, we've already done this. So what's the point? And they cut this deal with California. So I don't know specifically what it is with the light bulbs, but a lot of this is being driven by Trump's personal motives, which are to kind of undo anything Obama did. And then kind of ideological you know, ideologues, as opposed to, you know, because again, in a lot of cases, corporate America has kind of moved on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's other things they want to stop, but it's not, it's not these things. Right. I mean, the, the Trump was so pissed about the auto thing, that now those car companies who spoke to California and figured this thing out, they're the subject of, I think, an antitrust. Antitrust. Yeah, yeah, which is, yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. It's an extreme interpretation of, of the, of, of the anti, it's, it's clearly payback. And it is something that, uh, Bill Barr and people, you know, they're just happy to kind of follow where he, where he wants to go. Yeah. And I would just add that today at some point, um, it's the EPA, EPA is announcing the, that they're never they're not going to allow California to make its own rules about emissions and car efficiency anymore or any state or yeah or any state it's it's across the board but specifically California because this has been in place since the 1970s and it's um, hard to imagine that standing up i yeah. mean california i mean that that is such it's it's so embedded into the whole system right. that now do they have a i mean they must have California must be going to fight that in the courts, right? Yeah, I mean, there's multiple state officials and environmental groups that are in line to immediately challenge it. Wasn't that part of the the automakers' motivations, too, for just sticking to certain efficiency or emission standards is because they thought that Trump rolling it back would end up in courts anyways and that they would just basically need to be kind of like ready to, you know, kind of scale things back or comply with, you know, whatever kind of restrictions in that... Trump saying, no, you know, we're doing things my way. They just thought maybe wouldn't stick. Well, it's always, I mean, the advantage of, I mean, it's sort of like there's a similar thing with Texas and textbooks, right? Texas is so big. The way their education system is set up is they kind of buy textbooks as a state, which gives Texas and the people on the education, state education board in Texas, this map, basically like Texas decides what's going to be in textbooks for the whole country because it's such a big market. And that's always the power that California has had because yes, it's only California, but if you're an automaker, you're like, Dude, I'm not, we're not going to not sell our cars in 10% right. of the country. Not like that's, Los Angeles is a big walking city. Yeah, either, that's, you know? that's, that's, that's just not possible. Um, so it, it's always been a, for, for people who, who care about environmental protection, California is kind of leading the way on this has always been uh, a really big deal. I, I cannot imagine that will um, either make it in the courts or will not be changed in the next administration. It's just, it's, it's, uh, I, I just don't yeah. buy it. It's a very nice example of uh, the pure conservative ideology of states' rights, though. It's nice to see the president really <laughs> right, staying right, true right, to right, what right, he truly right, believes. Right. So, Nicole, just to round out the um, the reporting you've been doing, you, you had these five kind of, you know, 
terrible news points, but right. there was sort of a glimmer of hope that you included at the end of your piece. So tell us about What's the silver lining potentially? Well, it's actually kind of exactly what we're talking about because some of these um, deregulatory measures are um, centered on industries that have already created, you know, with the auto industry, they've already created their 2021, 2022 models for um, vehicles. And so if, if anything, at the end of the day, if Trump doesn't win re-election, um, the the deregulatory measures that he's put into place aren't, aren't going to go anywhere, if a de- especially if a Democrat wins. But um, So they're, they're largely reversible, according to um, many of the experts I talked to. So. And so, John, does that go kind of to your point that because Congress is in action, it's left up to the agencies to kind of figure out what they want to do? Are we just going to ping pong back and forth in, between administrations? Republican or Democrat is sort of like, all right, this administration will actually do something and if a Republican is in office, basically we'll just go backwards. In terms of rules on the books, I think that's right. But I mean, to Josh and Nicole's point, uh, the rest of the world is smarter. The you know, the the BPs and Shells of the world and the car companies of America and the world they, they see this trend that the U.S. is bouncing back and forth, and they're just not going to participate in that game. And one of the most interesting things I think with like the global effort to deal with climate stuff is even with the Paris Agreement. Trump says we're out, but we're not actually out because they built in a thing where you can't leave for four years. Right. So the Paris Agreement went into effect on November 4th, 2016. The election was November 8th. Trump comes in. That means that we're not officially out until November 4th, 2020, one day after the next U.S. presidential election. So, um, you know, the world is onto our game here. Also, I would say that, and, and uh, you know, we don't know how this will, will play out, but there were there were a few polls in the last week, and it's clear that within the United States, public opinion has moved dramatically just over the last, like, 18 months, basically. Um, like, there was, I, 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 I always, I don't like to just uh, do polls from memory, but the, there, the, the, the number of people who basically say, yes, uh, climate change is real, and it's being driven by man-made you know, uh, emissions was was up to like eighty or ninety percent. I mean, some insane. I mean, crazy number. And then and the number of people who see it as a crisis, an immediate crisis, was something like forty five percent. So it you you do kind of and and you know we 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 just see these things happening every day. These 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 storms. Um, yeah, this summer. I mean, wasn't July the hottest July ever on yeah, record? And, and it seems like it happens basically every summer. Yeah, and 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 again, a lot of it is the. Extreme weather is not the only part of it, but it's hard to ignore. You see these things again and again, and and you just like, in, you know, in, unless you have some like profound ideological commitment to just refusing to believe any of this. Unless you're Jim Inhofe or something. Yeah, at a certain point, you're just like, okay, clearly something is happening. It's I'm always this has always been a kind of a, a bugbear of, of mine. It's interesting the way that people, especially groups of people, come up with the ideas they come up with to give themselves fallbacks not to believe certain things they don't want to believe. And one of the things you see in the last, you know, it used to be 10, 15 years ago, it's sort of like, hey, man, you know, summer, winter, same as it's always been. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking about. And, but, and then there was this thing about, sure, there is climate change. I just don't think it's man-made. And you're just like, well, okay. I mean, set aside the science. Let's just think about logically. Like, is, it, is, is that really plausible that just kind of all of a sudden when there is this kind of thing that is a logical culprit that we are doing um and then the other thing is again i've always i've always think it's so funny let's say okay let's say that you know because climate does change for reasons that are are uh you know that don't that aren't driven by by humans over you know geologic time let's say that it just was getting hotter right it would follow like, okay, let's do everything to kind of like, <laughs> like, like kind of tamp down our c- contribution to it. Because if it gets hotter, it's not like, it, it's not like it's okay just because we didn't do it. We're still here. It's still a bummer for us. Anyway, it, it's just one of these funny yeah. things about how people, people come up with these fallbacks for, um, for inaction or just not wanting to, to end up needing to believe things they are committed to not believing. Right. I just one final question on this topic for the group, anyone who wants to take a stab at it. Uh, just going to the point I kind of made at the outset, which is that 
you know, climate coverage feels like it's increased. We have this Climate Change Now project happening at the moment. It's a week of sustained coverage. But how do we get people to really engage in the topic long term? What about after this week is done or, you know, once it's winter again in, you know, most parts of the country and, I don't know, think life goes back to normal? How do we kind of sustain that energy, do you think? Well, we have... I will say, you know, there are, it is always a hot part of the, uh, of the year somewhere. And there, and there is extreme weather that goes beyond, um, you know, that goes beyond heat and, and, and really violent storms. There's, you know, we've had, um, it's hard to say exactly that it's climate change, but we have had these these spurts of extremely cold weather. That's true. And these the part polar of the, vortexes. The part which, of the country Nicole and I hail from, right? Negative which, sixty degree wind chills, and right? Which like are that. which are which are supposed to be part of the sort of the climate instability. I mean, again, you can never point to any one thing as as clearly being the case. I mean, there's even things that I that I wonder about that I know gets talked about sort of on the margins of the climate change. Uh, debate that even things like the Gulf Stream, there doesn't have to be a Gulf Stream exactly where it is right now, which is basically what keeps like our whole kind of weather system is based on there being a Gulf Stream. It's also why England is basically habitable as opposed to being like Norway or something like that, right? Because you have the Gulf Stream and it comes up and it, it basically keeps England uh, warmish. So there there are other things that that just just basic cyclic climate patterns changing that you could have that like i don't know you know you could you could if you're if you're invested in igloos for england you could do well <laughs> yeah i mean to that point i, I think increasingly to answer your question david it, we're not going to have much of a choice i think maybe 10 years ago it would have been a question of how to get people to care through the winter but now there's just a disaster all the time and i think the trend is becoming apparent so much so that you even got like republicans in florida who need to you know, we've got Matt Getz talking about climate change now, I think, you know. And in, in his defense, he has been, he has, I mean, I wouldn't, he's not like an advocate, but basically I was struck like, I, it was like a year or so ago. I mean, because he's nuts on everything, right? But it was true that on climate change, like, yep, it's real. We got to do something about it. And again, it's not, it's, it's kind of not saying much in Florida because it's obviously affecting Florida. And Florida is like the top state where like a lot of it probably in half a century won't be above water anymore. So like, it's a big deal. But you do have, and there's, you know, that, uh, was it Tom Tillis in North Carolina? Mm-hmm. Or one of the, one of the, maybe it was Burr, I don't know, I don't know. Um, basically, even some of them are are are, uh, are starting to shift. Yeah. All right, John, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, shifting to our last topic for today, we've had what was dominating the news really for the whole week until Corey Lewandowski got in front of cameras and <laughs> in front of the House Judiciary Committee was this new report, a book that came out on Justice Kavanaugh and the confirmation process and the sexual misconduct allegations that he faced, like we said, about exactly a year ago when he was nominated to the Supreme Court. So two New York Times reporters published a new book on on the Kavanaugh sort of saga. And there's been a lot of kind of weird circumstances surrounding it. I think one of the biggest, I don't know, revelations of their reporting seems to be that there was a, a sort of unknown or a new allegation against Kavanaugh that surfaced in the midst of their reporting. It was another story from Kavanaugh's Yale days where he allegedly like exposed himself and thrust him, you know, his, his body, his penis in front of like a woman at a party. And apparently some other kind of classmates or people at the party saw this. Um, This was kind of buried in the times piece, right? I think it was Mm -hmm. something like the ninth paragraph or something before it came out. And set off, you know, a lot of, I don't know, hand-wringing among people responding to the story. Why was this kind of just a, not an afterthought, but just downplayed in the story in general. It was, the story itself was accompanied by a totally ridiculous tweet that said something like, you know, waving your penis in front of someone at a party might sound like harmless fun, but well, it was basically it might seem like harmless fun, but not to this not to this girl who had the penis pushed right. in her face, and everybody was like, "What the?" Right. You know, not it, only this, that, you, but it reaffirmed her insecurity at Yale, as if right, getting right. exposed to made her feel not part of the cool crowd. You know. And the funny thing is, I thought I read now that it was actually um, Pogreb in one of the 
one of the authors who either wrote the tweet. He did. Or, well, oh, I saw the, that report. Okay, yeah, that, that that either that or that it was basically cribbed from the book. That that was kind of her language. I think the uh, I think you're right that the reporter wrote the tweet. It was supposed to have been. You know, vetted, quote unquote, vetted, yeah. approved, well, whatever. The funny, uh, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, not to get too like, gra- but it just is a graphic thing. There's no way to avoid it. One of the things you said, like, at least as this has been presented to us, this isn't waving, like, kind of like, oh, you're at a party, you're over there, this guy's at the, on the other side of the room and he exposes himself. It sounds more like, like, he pushed his penis in her face, right? right? Which is, which is, that is a, those are very different. I mean, yeah. they both are not okay, but they're very different things. And, uh, and that's what's so infuriating about the way the New York Times handled everything about this, the top to bottom, is that the bulk of the story was intense reporting that corroborated Deborah Ramirez's accusation, which was of a similar nature, that right. he pushed his penis into her face. And this new one was that it was in pushed her in her hand. Right. Yeah, right, but right. I mean, that's behavior is singular. And, you know, to to have it come up in multiple stories like this, you know, lends credence to especially Ramirez's story, um, which is just, that is a huge thing, you know, that an accusation that the FBI flatly did not bother investigating is now, you know, looking more and more credible. They got seven people who remembered this happening before Kavanaugh became a federal judge. And the Ramirez story you're talking the about. The Ramirez story, right. right. Because there was a detail that came out about this other story and this other allegation that the woman who this allegedly happened to says she doesn't remember the doesn't remember the incident, but that it was recounted to the reporters by friends a or classmate, classmates or yeah. something. Which is what makes this so the handling of it so irresponsible because this is exactly what happened during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Is you had Christine Blasey Ford, who anyone who's watching that does not doubt her credibility. You know her story makes sense. She has nothing to gain from this, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and then you have Michael Avenatti, who cannot resist thrusting himself into the spotlight for two seconds, who's like throwing around these other claims that either aren't substantiated or, you know. D- Hasn't, kind of right, thing. hasn't done the groundwork to kind of present this complete package. The Republicans, you know, grab onto that with all their might and see, look at these people trying to destroy this man. And then they don't have to bother with the woman who is exhibiting, you know, the highest st- form of bravery coming in front of the, t- the world and telling her story. They instead get to cling onto this lesser story and completely twist the narrative. And that's exactly what happened now. And Democrats aren't talking about anymore. On the Monday uh, floor speeches on the Senate, McConnell spent his entire time saying like, oh, poor Kavanaugh. This world is trying to pull him apart. Chuck Schumer did not even address it. It just everything about it is so infuriating. Uh, it seems to me that the, the I, I think the 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 original mistake here for the Times is they took Report reported copy. Fine, it's a book, but it's still reporting. They put it in the opinion section as kind of like an excerpt from from their reporter's book, and so it's not for the time. So they don't do it as reported stuff. They kind of put it over in the in in the opinion section. That leads to kind of big new news being like buried in the piece. A, it probably also led to. My understanding of what happened here is that an editor probably editing for length or something like that just kind of cut out the part about the this second alleged or I don't know if it's at least of the two party kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. pushing himself onto people, uh, victims that she does not remember it. Now, maybe she just is saying that because she just doesn't want to be involved. Maybe she was drunk and doesn't remain who knows you know it doesn't uh but it's certainly it is a it is an important part of the story there's no question about it and i and and it seems like all of these things i think stem from running in in the opinion section that it's it would have been edited differently um there would have been more attention to all right we have to kind of focus on what is what is the big news not this stuff about you know, class politics and 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 yuppie, you know, and, 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 and preppies yeah. and all that kind of stuff. That there's something in here that's that's really big. So, as you say, the Times just screwed this up on 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 so many different. There was levels. some there was some reporting that these two reporters. I mean, I guess there's lots of diff, there's some gray area 
when you write a book and you're a New York Times employee, but you're on book leave and this reporting is for a, a book publisher, it's not for the paper. So there's not, there's not like a perfect formula for your book project going into the paper. The New York Times pointed out that it's common for book excerpts you know, from New York Times reporters to appear in the Sunday Review, which is the kind of weekend opinion section. There was also reporting, I think in Vanity Fair, correct me if I'm wrong, that this story was pitched to the news mm-hmm. section, to news editors, mm-hmm. and that they passed on it. And that's yeah, when that's it, right. that's how it ultimately ended up in the opinion section, because on a, the opinion section operates independently from the newsroom. Right, that's right, right. something that maybe kind of casual news consumers don't totally understand, is that the editorial board, the op-ed, any opinion thing, at least in a traditional newspaper setting, is walled off, sometimes on different floors, totally and, and, different. And definitely physical. there. They run by, they have two different, two totally different chains of command. Right. Um, I think it's one of those things, though, that, yes, all of those things make sense. Pitch it to here, over there, it's different standards. I think what they're kind of, what they're trying, they're kind of hinting at there is when we're publishing an excerpt, it's really the publisher's responsibility to make sure everything's true right. and kind of we're just publishing it at the end of the day though none of that cuts it yeah it appeared in the new york times these kind of these distinctions really don't mean anything and 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 frankly should not have to mean anything to the public this is all insider stuff who's yeah, in true. charge of what and stuff i mean we we have had i you mean obviously up- nothing at, nothing at this level but we've had things at tpm where in terms of like the internal operations of TPM, well, it happened because of this and because of that, and we don't we don't do you know we don't vet that kind of like dude, no one cares. Right. I it just, appears under your in your publication. I just wonder how much it would have mattered if that initial clarification had been in there, though. I mean, I think that Trump would have and you know Republicans would have seized on the well, this woman doesn't remember it and she didn't want to be interviewed, so is this even this isn't a credible allegation? And then Democrats would have, you know, well, regardless, this is something that a credible person remembers and kind of adds fuel to this, um, the Deborah Ramirez allegation. So I don't, I feel like it would have been partisan either way, the response, but I'm just curious how much it would have mattered. Yeah, that's a good point. What also mucks it up a little bit is that just to get back kind of to the strange internal procedures was that apparently it wasn't a strict excerpt. It was an essay that the authors kind of adapted from their reporting for right. the newspaper. So right, it's not like right. it was a copy and paste kind of thing. Right, right. They right, were right, trying right. to cobble together. Here's what our reporting found. And and I think they're, they are saying, the authors say that in the book, this is clear. Right. That she doesn't remember it. So, yeah, I, it's a mess. I mean, I, I just, to your point, Nicole, I mean, I think, I mean, absolutely. I think, they, I think that defenders of Kavanaugh would have brought that up. It is a significant part of the story. There's no getting around that. It, and especially, I mean, and there's just no undoing if you don't include it. And then you say, ah, we should have included right. this. Now yeah. we're including it. You, it's hard to get past that. Um, I, I will say that it did, my sense is, even from a, a non-Kavanaugh defending sort of point of view, the way it originally ran, and I think the perceptions that, that came, that were, that, came to it over the weekend were sort of like oh buried down in the piece it looks seems like you completely confirmed yet another allegation that is that is highly highly relevant to this you know it, as you said it 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 adds a lot of uh, you know kind of confirmation or or mm-hmm. you know it, it it beefs up uh ramirez's story and again, it was just kind of buried there and sort of like you know a million witnesses it happened we confirmed it I think you can still say that, but if the person who is the victim doesn't remember it, th- th- that that's just that's part of it. That can't not be part of it. Um, so I think it would have played a little differently. I don't think fundamentally it would have been different, but I think it would have played a little differently. And I think I just think it's such a shame because there are huge nuggets of news in that w- without the third allegation. You know, I mean the FBI's complete disinterest in even pretending to investigate these claims are, I mean, shocking and, you know, horrific, especially for the women watching this. You know, what kind of trust does that put in our law enforcement system? But, you know, I think 
part of this also, which is really hard as you like hear this new story and all these emotions are riled up again, especially if it was hard for you to watch this the first time around for which, you know, many women in our newsroom it was. And now it's again, you know, he probably was this horrible person and you're like okay well he's on the supreme court now impeachment hasn't happened in centuries you know and it's just so and it just makes you feel so impotent you know i would say one thing that i think is is fair to say about the fbi is it was clear at the time that the brief given to them made it they were basically told not to do that they were given a brief that I can't remember what it was exactly. They were given a very narrow question, basically just to, I think basically to talk to, you know, to talk to Blasey Ford, to talk to that other guy who was part of the incident with her. And like, that was it. So I, my only point of bringing it up is that I don't think it's like the FBI per se. They were given marching orders that was, the cover up was kind of baked in. Right. They were they they were told not to do that. And that, I think, puts the responsibility where it belongs, which is basically at the Department of Justice and at the White House. They made they you know, there was that whole thing with uh, uh, Senator Flake. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to I'm not going to vote yes until and there's Chris Coons and Chris Coons. Right. And that whole kind of drama, um, unless there's an investigation they got them to yield, but then they came up with this, this uh, you know, brief to investigate, which basically meant that unless, unless that uh, Mark, is Mark Judge? Mike Mark, Judge? Mark Judge. Mark Judge. Mm-hmm. That unless that, unless they went to that guy and said, hey, would you like to talk? Unless they said, you know what? I would love to talk. You know, unless that happened, which was clearly never going to happen, that they'd be like, oh, right. that was it. Couldn't come up with anything. I mean, when this story initially came out just to kind of tie things back to what we were talking about at the top of the show a bunch of 2020 democrats called for kavanaugh's impeachment kate like you say since the kind of new york times drama has been unfolding democrats have gone pretty quiet on that but i thought maybe we could just end by kind of tying it into democrats impeachment efforts in general there was some some new reporting in politico this morning kind of about tensions between nadler and pelosi um and kind of wondering where you guys think things stand there. Yeah, I mean, I alluded to this earlier, but I think, you know, they're close. They've served together for a long time, but I'm wondering how this division is is tenable in their personal relationship at this point, just because, you know, like we said, um, Nadler gave a WNYC radio interview this week where he said that he personally is for impeachment, um, but, you know, it's his committee's job to win over the will of the people and blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, he is hampered from being fully on Pelosi's page right now because they've got different jobs. It's Pelosi's job to protect the freshmen who are from moderate districts and to do what's best for the majority of her caucus. It's her job to hold the House. You know, it's his job to run his committee and to win re-election while he's facing the most formidable primary challenge that he's had in recent history against this um, New York State lawmaker who's coming at him from the left and who is making significant money running on his reluctance to call for Trump's impeachment, you know? So they've got different motivations and they're serving different masters at the end of the day. So, I mean, it's hard to see how long the Democratic Party can kind of stagger along when two of the legs are going in different directions. And Nicole, there was a, there, in this reporting this morning, there was a closed door meeting between yeah. the Pelosi was saying I, I what was, was happening say, there. Um, I, I thought the most telling piece of information that came out of that Politico story was the fact that Pelosi told people in the meeting to leak the news that she was um, or to leak that she was unhappy with the way that Nadler was running the the committee. And um, I mean, who knows what the motivation is there other than um, he just had this, you know, big time in front of the cameras yesterday with the Lewandowski hearing. And um, maybe it's her way of getting her foot uh, back at the front of, right. of the disagreement. I would say too. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is a, a a true disagreement or or a true unhappiness between them, tension or whatever. But I would say it sort of suits both of their interest to 
have this idea that they're kind of at odds to allow them to kind of go in opposite directions and not have people saying, oh, how's that consistent? So I, I'm a little skeptical of, of, of the whole thing. Um, I really do think it, it, it kind of, uh, I think it serves both of their interests to kind of get some distance between them, mm-hmm. allow her to say, yeah, well, I mean, this, this, you know, we're not impeaching him. My caucus isn't impeaching him. He got this committee. They're doing their thing, you know, kind of whatever, and we're doing our thing. So, so I'm, I'm skeptical. So you don't bit. think the Dems in disarray headlines that this spawns hurts them? Um, you know, everything's relative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not. I mean, at a certain level, I think most of those kinds of headlines are only of interest to sort of people like us who work in the political news business mm-hmm. and people who are hardcore, you know, kind of political junkies who have very, um, you know, confirmed political beliefs to, to start with. Um, it's not it's not great. On the other hand, um, he he really needs to be doing something. He needs it for his, for his own personal, pol- you mm-hmm. know, his own personal political future. Um, he needs it to for the Democrats in the caucus who really believe this is a deep issue of principle that has to happen. So he needs that. She needs to be able to kind of, you know, uh, be saying her own her own thing and to give these, you know, uh, people in swing districts someone to point to says, you know, we're not we're not impeaching him. So. I think that giving both of those sides the ability to kind of speak their piece is a greater advantage than sort of meta stories about, ah, oh, Dems in disarray. Because at a certain level, I mean, even, even, even at, a, at a substantive foundational level, does it even matter? Like, okay, there are some Democrats who really want to, want to impeach the president, and there are others who don't. I mean, that's not that's not that surprising. Um, and, and she's the head of the caucus, and, and it's not even going to come to a floor vote uh, if, if she doesn't say so. So that's, uh, again, maybe she really is upset that he's kind of going further than, than she would like, uh, but I'm, I'm just skeptical. I guess my only thought in that vein is at the time where the party, you know, who's got the White House, you know, is um, just so chaotic and so truly in disarray. Mm-hmm that the narrative that the opposing party also can't get itself together, I would think could be unattractive to not, I don't know that a swing voter exists, but someone who isn't sold. Yeah. You know, maybe that would cause a throw your hands up. Politics is broken, but maybe people who are inclined to think that think that already, you know? Yeah. I don't know. And, and I, 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 I will say too, that, that relatively soon that the democratic party will become the nominee. We don't know who that's going to be, but that person will be the will be the story. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's something to it. But again, people can have. I'm just saying that it may be on balance in everybody's interest to get a little, yeah, get a and, little space. And the nominee thing is a that's a good point because at some stage this is a waiting game, right? It's like you push this, kick this can down the road till we have a nominee who says, who has to impeach him? I'm going to beat him in a few months, you know, and it'll take care of itself. And, right. that I th- and that I think is actually, although she won't say it explicitly, is in many ways Pelosi's actual point. The kind of like, we're just in this waiting game before there's a nominee and we're right about to have an election. Right. So this, none of this is even, even going to happen. So... A, let's just k- kind of kick the ca- kick the can down the road, and soon the big story will be presidential primaries, the sort of the actual you know the election over Trump. So again, and this is the, we, we're, I was having a conversation a little while ago with uh, uh, former uh, high high ranking uh, judiciary committee staffer who was who is is not on the side that Pelosi is in on this, but really sees what she's doing as. I'll take some hits, but I just need to get this out of 2019, and then it's going to take care of itself. Right. Because then all the oxygen is about the general election, and if you really, you know, whatever outrage you have about about Donald Trump, at that point, there's going to be 
a, a way for you to, to, to vent that outrage, and it'll be a general election. And and you, you can say that is cynical, and, and if it is really that, you know, kind of, if that is sort of thinking, it is kind of cynical, but th- the calendar does have its own logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. On that note. All right. Okay. So uh, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, become a member of TPM. Subscribe to Prime. Subscribe to Prime ad-free. Subscribe to Inside. We have all these different options. Uh, We have a big... Uh, sign-up drive coming in the second half of September. That is really critical for TPM's uh, future, and TPM is what what puts on this podcast. So if you're a TPM reader, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider signing up and become a member of TPM. We even have a special offer uh, for Josh Marshall Podcast listeners, and that is talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal and you get 20% off a membership. So do it. It's really important, and it supports the work that all of us do. Yes, please. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Thanks. Nicole. See Thanks, Kate. Thanks. Thanks, Josh.